I'm Madeline Jane Auble, and this is Glamour Girls Next Door, MGM to Playboy, part two of Window Dressing's debut episode, Adrian, Adrian, Adrian. Jean Harlow's hips rule in all her films. The punch of her voice and her roughshod attitude takes on sparkle when Adrian costumes her in hip-hugging, bias-cut, and gourd gowns. Harlow is a fully embodied beauty with a temper, whether she is in trampy day dresses or dripping with beads in the most glamorous evening gowns. Her outrage separates her from Mae West and other brash blondes of the time. Mae West was gruff, but never angry. Softer bombshells, like Marilyn Monroe, come later. Marilyn, in many ways, modeled herself after Harlow, but she was never outspoken or enraged enough to match her. Harlow's anger is what makes her explosive, the true blonde bombshell. There is an important misconception about the figures, literal bodies, of Hollywood legends. Marilyn Monroe, Jean Harlow, and even Garbo fall into this trap set by untrained eyes and naive notions that all things get better and thinner with time. The truth is Marilyn Monroe was not plus-sized. She had a literal 22-inch waist. For context, most models, and I mean size zero, high-fashion runway models, now have a 26-inch waist. Jean Harlow didn't have a poofy stomach, as I once heard a TCM commentator say, but in fact had a difficult-to-attain physique in any measure in any time. What she did have were hips. Her hips were accentuated by bias-cut dresses, a popular and cutting-edge style of the time. Cut on the bias means the fabric is cut at a 45-degree angle and, and creates a different hang than a more traditional cut. It also took twice the amount of fabric than a straight cut. This is the reason it went out in the 1940s with World War II and the subsequent fashion rationing. Think about holding a net from the corners straight up and down, and then take that and turn it. The netting opens and drapes in a wildly different way. Dresses cut on the bias were a very new phenomenon in the 1930s. It was a radical silhouette originated by Madeleine Vianette just a few years earlier. The cut of these gowns hugged the body. In some ways, it was very flattering, but in others, very unforgiving. I suggest you look at images of women you imagine to have the flattest stomach in the world in a bias-cut gown and see if you think they hold a candle to Jean Harlow. The truth about our misconceptions around body ideals, then and now, have a lot to do with what we call vanity sizing. Vanity sizing is when we call a size 6 a size 0. People often say Marilyn Monroe was a size 12 or 16, but the truth is that a size 12 in 1955 is more closely aligned with a size 0 now. The issue is we are treating sizing as a fixed and sensical system that predates beauty standards. Off-the-rack sizing didn't even exist until the 1940s, roughly 10 years before my Marilyn Monroe example. In fact, we didn't really buy clothes in department stores or off the rack until the 1930s. And, and even then, it was expected that you, meaning women, would alter the garment at home. The Work Progress Administration and the American Agricultural Agency set out to get an accurate sample of American women's measurements 
because of financial pressures from the garment industry. I don't actually recall when I learned all of this, but if you are interested in the details of the financial pressures involved at this time, I would recommend reading a 1939 Time Magazine article entitled, No Boondoggling. The endeavor was not successful. Apparently women's bodies were and are too different to create any true uniform sizing. We are essentially just winging it, or rather, the garment industry has been winging it, and we are going along for the ride. So now that we have set the record straight about Jean Harlow's body and her peers' figures, let's talk about how she wore a dress and what it did for her ability to wield power. In the 1932 film Red Dust, Harlow plays a wayward prostitute named Van Teen. Mary Astor plays the virtuous wife, Barbara Willis, to Gary Willis, played by Jean Raymond, and Clark Gable plays the romantic lead, Dennis Carson. The setup of this film is pitting the two leading ladies and their respective types against one another. The setup fails in the second-to-last scene in which a gunshot is fired, Dennis gets what is coming to him, Vantine supports Barbara, and each woman ultimately gets what they want. Adrian's designs support the women's alliance in this scene with deliberately aligned attire. The costume design up to this point has been on brand with the roles of Madonna Whore. Harlow, Vantine, prances about in the most delightfully frothy day dresses made of sheer, cheap cotton cut on the bias with flounces at her knees and a gaudy patent leather belt to finish. Patterns of polka dots, paisley swirls, and large flowers float about her body throughout the film. She wears hats with large beaded baubles that hang down around her shockingly blonde head. Garish glamour supports her in her every quip. Mary Astor's character, Barbara Willis, is dressed in proper tropical sportswear typical of the time and supportive of her type. White linen with soft-hued stripes and collared shirts adorn her during the day. At night, both women wear silk and lace. Harlow's a bit less elegant than Astor's, but she makes up for it in oomph. In the second-to-last scene, Barbara walks in on Vantine and Dennis literally rolling around together in a heathenish romp. Barbara, horrified, demands an explanation for what she sees as Dennis's dalliances, not realizing that Dennis and Vantine's relationship predates her own affair with him. Barbara makes this demand wearing a stunning, floor-length, white, silk kimono-style robe the sleeves of which are near pornographic in their lushness. They are also akin to angel wings, albeit weighted with earthly delight. Dennis tells her that he, quote, isn't a one-woman man, but if she wants to wait her turn, unquote, bang! Barbara pauses, pulls a gun from her angelic robe, and shoots him in the stomach. As the shot rings out, Barbara's husband, played by Jean Raymond, walks through the door. He demands to know why she, she would shoot him, understanding immediately that his wife is likely having an affair with Dennis. Vantine, who had rushed to Dennis' side as soon as the bullet hit, stands up and defends Barbara's actions. Vantine, dressed in a near-identical daisy-printed, colorful, one assumes, Angel-winged, kimono-style robe tells Barbara's husband that Dennis tried to rape Barbara, and she shot him in self-defense. This moment of alliance between the two female leads 
is more than heartening. It is a leveling of the playing field. Vantine's station in life is that of sex worker, and Barbara's is that of lady. Yet Vantine's takes the opportunity to prevent Barbara from falling from her platformed place in the world. This doesn't raise up Vantine or Harlow, who in my estimation doesn't need the lift, but lowers Dennis and in so doing equalizes the women. Adrian's designed lend these two women an embodied agency that would not have been possible if another designer costumed this film. The quote-unquote fallen woman dressed in angel wing adjacent gowns is typical in his work. He also paid special attention to clothing his stars as individual, not just the type she was cast as. In 1933's Bombshell, Harlow plays Lola Burns, a character who is remarkably similar to Harlow. She is a movie star trying to juggle a father and brother who live off of her, a publicity agent who exploits her, an assistant who can't seem to keep her paws off of Lola's wardrobe, and a European gigolo intent on making a meal ticket out of her. The screwball comedy is poignant in its accurate portrayal of a woman being pulled apart at the seams by the greed surrounding her. No one plays an actress playing a woman, playing herself, better than Jean Harlow. In the second shot of the third scene, Harlow, as Lola, heads down a grand staircase wearing a white gown worn without a brassiere, as instructed by the studio. The gown is white chiffon with a large Bertha collar trimmed in rickrack lace, gourd trumpet skirt, and three tiers of ruffles at the hemline. She wears an oversized hat topped with a pile of bougainvillea flowers. She looks both stunning in and completely overwhelmed by the hat and dress. The result is the sense that the dress is attacking her, along with the daily barrage from family and studio henchmen. When she gets to the bottom of the staircase, the doorbell rings, and in enters Miss Carroll, a photoplay reporter played by Ruth Warren. Harlow and her father, played by Frank Morgan, accompany Warren to the drawing room for an impromptu interview. During the course of the questioning, Lola's dad repeatedly answers for his daughter, and in one particularly noteworthy bit of comedy, says that he has always, quote, fostered Lola's interest and ability in histrionics. Roaming uterus aside, Lola holds her own by using her wardrobe to point out the absurdity that has been forced upon her and uses that absurdity to her advantage. Frustrated and literally tripping over the trumpet skirt of her gown, Lola heads for the door, but is not allowed to escape before being mauled by three giant sheepdogs. The dogs paw and tear at her dress, and they nearly knock the delicate Lola to the ground. Later in the film, Lola is dancing with a random marquee. She is dressed in a teardrop beaded silver and white gown that makes her look positively gooey with glamour. She wears it with a gold lame overcoat that has frog closures on her left hip and gathered mutton sleeves. It is in this getup that Harlow looks most like herself. Adrian's designs have the appearance of a candy maker's chocolate being poured over caramel when worn by Harlow. He had an excellent sensitivity to how to highlight her personality through her form. Now we move from the downtown flounce as personified by Miss Harlow to upper crust tomboy as embodied by Norma Shearer. Shearer was MGM's biggest star in the early 1930s. 
and her alignment with Adrian helped forge the path for American fashion as distinct from European designs. The so-called American look, a phrase coined in the 1940s to describe the wave of women's sportswear that overtook the industry, can be linked, if not traced, to Norma Shearer's wardrobe on and off the screen the decades prior. This American look has transformed into what we now call athleisure. Juicy Couture, Ralph Lauren, and even Aloe all owe Shearer a debt. Her ability to pull off sportswear, as well as jeweled evening attire, made her one of the first every-woman types in Hollywood. Adrian helped take a silent-era vamp and fleshed her out as an elegant tomboy, a category that previously did not exist. 1931's A Free Soul features Shearer as Jan, a modern woman and a daughter to Stephen Ash, played by Lionel Barrymore, a high-powered attorney who typically represented the seedier side of the city's population. Shearer falls in love with her father's most recent client, Ace, played by Clark Gable. Ace is a loan shark who has connections to organized crime. He is a rough-and-tumble type, true to Gable's image at the time, who does not treat Jan like a lady. The idea of being a lady is a restrictive prospect and up for debate during the 1930s, but is ultimately treated as her only option. Jan agrees to give up Ace, now thinking her love for him is akin to her father's addiction to alcohol. Father and daughter go into the woods to dry out from their respective addictions. Jan's father ends up falling off the wagon and hitching a ride on a cargo train, leaving Jan no choice but to return to Ace. Upon her return, he betrays her as a slut to her betrothed Dwight Winthrop, played by Leslie Howard, by telling Dwight of his sexual relationship with Jan. Jan refuses to marry Ace and accepts her fate as a fallen woman. Dwight shoots and kills Ace and ends up testifying on Jan's behalf when the opposing counsel attempts to smear her good name in court. Ultimately, Stephen returns to take responsibility for leading his daughter astray by encouraging her relationship with Ace initially. This rare bit of blame being placed where it belongs is delightful, but not as delightful as the joy Ace and Jan's sex scene was treated with. Jan is waiting in Ace's room wearing a Grecian-style robe with a braided belt and a flowing train. According to the July 1931 photo play issue, this quote-unquote negligee is made of tangerine velvet, making it a wildly celebratory frock in which to lose one's virtue in. The thoughtfulness of making this garment tangerine velvet when it would not have been seen by the movie-going audience, given that it would have been in black and white, is an example of Adrian's commitment to the stories he is helping to tell and the women telling them with him. Shearer's character, Jan, is the sexual aggressor in this scene, and even in the face of Ace's wholehearted request to wed, she dismisses him and demands he take her in his arms instead. This scene ends with a shot of Jan lying on a lounge chair, arms spread, eyes lustful, saying, Come on, put them around me, to Ace. The shot fades out, and we have the impression of lust satiated. She is never shamed by this act, not even when Ace attempts to ruin her with the information of their premarital lovemaking later in the film. She suffers consequences, but he is the one that looks cheap. 
she holds her dignity and is allowed to have the celebration of the sex scene as marked by her tangerine velvet frock. A Free Soul was remade by MGM in 1953 as The Girl Who Had Everything. The remake starred Elizabeth Taylor as the daughter of William Powell, her high-powered attorney father. This version is played very differently. It is a great example of the difference in the treatment of female roles in the 1930s versus the 1950s. Taylor is not thoughtful or questioning of her love for the 'er ne'er-do-well in this version of the film. She single-handedly destroys her life and the life of everyone around her, unlike in the Shearer version where it is her father who first drops the ball with his inability to stay on the wagon. It doesn't matter, though, because just between us girls, Taylor's character still wins and her recklessness is compelling on screen. Very few other actresses could pull off what Elizabeth Taylor could. Say what you will about Lindsay Lohan's portrayal of Taylor in Lifetime's 2012 movie Liz and Dick, but it honestly made sense to me. They are comparably compelling women to watch. But I digress. One year before A Free Soul, Shearer starred in another unconventional love story, The Divorcee. She plays Jerry, a young designer and self-described tomboy. Jerry marries Ted, played by Chester Harris. Ted cheats on Jerry with a woman named Janice, played by Mary Doran. Jerry cheats right back with a family friend and old flame named Paul, played by Conrad Nagel. Ted and Jerry officially divorce, but later reunite in Paris on New Year's Eve. In the second scene of the film, Jerry and Ted are canoodling by a lake. Jerry is dressed in a striped t-shirt and a utilitarian skirt with a matching belt. This no-muss, no-fuss look is the perfect match to her attitude at the time, which can best be summed up by the pair's conversation. On the topic of love and marriage, Ted says to Jerry, quote, you have a man's point of view, unquote. Jerry responds, quote, that's why we are going to make a go of it, everything equal, unquote. This mistaken assumption that equality lives in the man's point of view comes back to haunt Jerry as the film progresses. In a scene in which Jerry confronts Ted about his affair with Janice, he initially denies the affair, then eventually admits to it. Jerry wears a sheer black silk chiffon dress with ankle-length trumpet skirt and long sleeves. The cuffs have a one-sided bow secured with a jewel buckle on each wrist. She wears a black turban-style hat tied in the back at the nape of her neck in an exaggerated bow. The dress fortifies and supports her as her husband attempts to undermine her feelings with directives such as snap out of it and it meant nothing to me. The dress Jerry wears in the scene marks the solemnity of the occasion, as well as providing the adult structure needed to face such an event as infidelity. In the following scene, Jerry and Ted exit the privacy of their bedroom and join their friends in the living room. Jerry proposes a toast to her marriage, after which she tosses her glass into the fire with force. This moment punctuates a fury that can only be contained by costume. Jerry's rage is quelled by her ermine-trimmed black velvet cloak, which she throws over her shoulder. Adding further protection to her frock, later that night, Jerry comes home with her friend Paul, whom she will have an affair with that very evening. She laments to him that she is, quote, trying to hold on to the marvelous latitude of a man's point of view, unquote. 
it becomes clear that having a quote unquote man's viewpoint doesn't afford her equality or latitude. Considering these films and the women in them through the lens of costume design is an incredibly useful exercise because it covers the the component of these films that we, the moviegoing audience, can carry away with us into the world. The grammar of dressing as a means of embodying power are fully realized in the MGM films costumed by Adrian. My argument is not that Adrian was the mastermind behind Garbo, Shearer, and the like. It is that his designs speak a language that all women invariably have to learn. It is a language for women, and Adrian, unlike Ori Kelly, spoke it for and to women, not the leering yet blind onlookers among us. So you may have noticed that a fair number of the women's roles in the films we have discussed were prostitutes, or in Shearer's case, flirting with the freedom afforded so-called ladies of the night. You could easily see this as an example of the progress made in film industry over time. Most roles for women in current day romantic comedies or dramas are that of small town girl who makes good at her high powered business job. I'm not sure that that is a big difference between the role of prostitute in films in the 1930s. In fact, I think Anna Christie, because of Garbo's role as a sex worker, is a more accurate examination of the movement and restriction of it that women experience in their fight for wealth and power, equality as measured in American society. This is probably a good time to make note of the fact that when I am speaking about sex workers, or as I often say, prostitutes, I am trying to both respect it as a legitimate choice and profession and acknowledge the cultural connotations, especially during the time periods we are discussing, shaping the next decade of films. Most of the films I discussed in this episode were pre-code and therefore were not subject to the moral rules that ended up shaping the next decade of films and subsequent roles for women. The Hayes Code, along with World War II and a general deep-seated need to scapegoat the consequences of men's bad behavior, birthed noir and the so-called femme fatale that we will be tackling, or rather, seductively languishing on in the next episode of Window Dressings, Glamour Girls Next Door, MGM to Playboy. See you then.